to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And this is episode number 184, number 184. And uh, yeah, I got some things going on. First of all, want to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, as the holidays come up, I'm going to be doing probably may not be hitting it every week, may hit it every other week or every three weeks or or whenever else. You know how this time of year goes. And there's usually not a lot of firearms news around this time of year. So so we'll see how it goes. But I want everybody to have a safe and uh, enjoyable Thanksgiving holiday and, of course, extend that through the entire holiday season. First of all, um, I'm going to say that this is enough about Larry Vickers I got just a couple quick things to say because people keep keep bringing it up. But, you know, I'm heartbroken by it. Uh, I thought he was a good content creator. Thought he was a guy with an interesting background. Um, all these things. And now, unfortunately, that background includes two felonies. Uh, so I'm really, uh, really not happy with that whole situation. Hope it works out well for him. Uh, I keep seeing his stuff on Facebook. You know, it's all these throwback pictures of guns he's made or or ones that he thinks are interesting. And I'm like, dude, you don't get it. You know, you are not, you're not really a gun guy anymore with these. You pled to two felonies. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. It just seems weird. Whenever I see one of those posts, I'm like, it brings it all back. They're not making me forget about all this stuff. So... Uh, anyway, that's the deal. Uh, no more talk about Larry. Wish him well. Um, hope it works out. Maybe maybe he can get a pardon at some point and kind of come come back into the fold. Uh, talking about, you know, everybody's talking about some really disgusting stuff, this anti-Semitism and all the rest of it that's creeping up around the country. But that is just covering up the uh, crime wave we're in. Um, people are paying more attention to this and the goofballs and morons on campus. Um, you know, anybody who's supporting Hamas is a complete imbecile. You know, a complete imbecile. But uh, it's covering up just the rising crime. I mean, even even where I live, the vicinity in which I live, crime has just gone out of control. Um shootings at malls that normally would be safe uh all kinds of things going on and and, you know you can look through your local news look look at the crime statistics and a lot of times they don't really want to advertise they they downplay it it's everybody's trying to downplay it like it isn't really happening uh they're ostriches sticking their heads in the sand and uh they're gonna they're gonna pay a price for that. I mean, you have to understand we are living in an increasingly more dangerous society. Uh, civility is out the door. Uh, people don't act civilly anymore. There are a lot of just criminals are just allowed free reign, um, and that's the only thing you can say about it. It's just free reign, and they are they are running around doing it. That's that's what it is, and. Uh, you know, I, I think if, if, if you have not prepared yet, go out and do what I said. Buy a, buy a entry-level AR and a 9mm pistol and, and uh, some rounds. Get some practice in and uh, hope for the best. One weird thing that's been happening in my area is, and it may be happening in other areas too, it's kind of hard to get the information, but... Uh, in the last six, seven months, there have been three or four um, robberies of gun shops. And these robberies are people, they don't, they don't try it in the middle of, the, you know, this isn't, this isn't like uh, Dillinger going into a bank and, you know, waving around a Tommy gun and, and uh, taking the loot out in front of everybody. This is not that. This is, they wait till after hours when the alarms are on and everything else and they crash a vehicle through the uh, front door and grab as many guns as they can and just get become become gone. 
Um, yeah, they get them on the security cameras and all that, but uh, I know of two instances where that's happened, and I don't think they've caught anybody yet. So if, you know, gun shops would be well advised to put up some concrete <laughs> barriers in front of the in front of the deal so somebody just doesn't come drive crashing in and uh, grabbing. And, uh, you know, it's... It is a, if you have a gun collection, you know, obviously it's always been good policy. Don't tell anybody, you know. People ask me if I own guns, if I don't know them. I said, oh, I don't have any. No, I'm sorry. Don't know. Um, you know, I, I just don't tell people. And I don't, I never tell people how many guns I own, what type of guns I own, anything like that. Um, it's just none of their business because I don't want them talking to somebody who talks to somebody who then, you know, wants to drive a <laughs> car through my front door because they don't even know what's in there. And and what I have, they probably don't even want anyway. So uh, that's that's the deal there. Uh, go to the Saga of the Remington Rolling Block. I covered this last podcast. Um, I bought a Remington Rolling Block, and it was in 5070 caliber. And it did have, you know, some crowns on it. It looked kind of like the Danish uh, one and it's like oh that's pretty interesting and uh, you know it had a lot of a lot of things it's obviously led an interesting life well a man named George Lehman who's written the book on Remington rolling block rifles which I actually have on order now um, he helped me on Facebook with this as it turns out this rifle is, and, and this is only interesting to, to people who are really into the minutiae about guns. But the interesting part is this gun was made for the Greek contract and was originally in 42 Berdan. I've never seen a 42 Berdan cartridge or gun, so I can't really tell you a whole lot about those. Um, then it was diverted. I guess the Greek government defaulted. Yeah, imagine that. On the contract and so these were diverted right to the franco-prussian war france bought them they just you know hey they were they were there there was a lot of post-civil war stuff that wound up the french basically the war didn't last that long so it's pretty pretty uh, unusual but anyway the french were they were buying and a lot of people were selling so uh the french french bought a lot of rolling block rifles i think as many as a hundred thousand and to make these things more usable, they, they obviously didn't really use any in 42 Berdan, but they were um, just quickly rechambered to 43 Spanish. Um, I guess that is pretty easy to do. So this rolling block started at 42 Berdan, went to 43 Spanish, then somehow came back to the United States. When it came back to the United States, it was rechambered for 5070. Uh, probably to make it more saleable. Now, some portion of these guns were were sent to Mexico. I don't think the one I have was. Simply because uh, the guns that went to Mexico, Mexico's a tough place. It's a tough climate. And guns that go down there and get used for a couple of three decades or four decades, they, they tend to show their, uh, show their age and wear. And this gun does not. So I don't think it may have been rechambered for sale, just commercial sale here. Because nobody in the United States in the 1870s, maybe early 1880s, was uh, really using 43 Spanish. And it's interesting that the rolling block was, you know, you talk about mass production. And at the height of rolling block production, they were working, the, the factory was working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and they were producing like 1,600 rifles a day, which, you know, that's pretty fantastic. That's That sounds more like World War II production rather than early 1870s production, uh, 18, late 1860s, early 1870s. So it's really a fascinating. And, and I'm sure all these guns were fundamentally... Um, the same I, I i'm betting that the barrel blanks were all the same and depending on the caliber they just would ream it out to the right caliber so they didn't have thicker ones for 5070 and and 
uh, more contoured ones for the smaller cartridges I think they they effectively just said hey you know here it goes um, we have one size barrel <laughs> and, and it comes in whatever caliber we we uh, um, machine it into so um, very interesting gun a very fascinating history and uh, you know it's going to be it's very enjoyable I have fired it uh, one of the things I discovered, and I think I mentioned this last time, was the trigger pull is very, very heavy, and I didn't, I don't really care for that. And there's some remedies for it, but it's it's really because you know they don't have a manual safety, so um, they don't want somebody actually, you know, accidentally discharging or negligent discharging the rifle. So they deliberately had a very heavy trigger pull because of the lack of a manual safety which I, I found to be uh, fascinating uh, very as our friend of the podcast said it's a very user-friendly you don't it doesn't require a lot of training uh, to become you know reasonably proficient with it um, of course it's powerful and in, in whatever cartridge you want and they were used even up by the French in World War One, so an interesting, interesting, interesting uh, um, rifle, and a lot of, and it's the apocryphal story and and kind of the exemplar that, you know, you buy some of these old guns, you really have to look at the careful markings on them, you know, carefully look at the markings, um, and they can tell you a lot to where these have been, and what they've done, and what their history is, and that to me is so fascinating uh, what a little mark on steel can tell you about where these things have been where they've gone and and uh, what parts of history they've they've been witness to they can't talk but they can tell us something at least a little something so there ends the saga of the rolling block at least for now at least for now um, let's see you know, and that is about the biggest thing going for a while. So, uh, really, don't want to talk about politics. Don't want to talk about any of that kind of nonsense. So we can go right into my favorite part, which is questions and answers. And the first question is, uh, why wasn't the FG forty-two used more by Germany in World War Two? Um because fundamentally it's a compromised gun that doesn't do anything particularly well now that's not a criticism but it is a it, and i'm not criticizing people who love them there are people who just adore them love them um think that they're very cool and they are one of the coolest looking guns i mean i i absolutely um think that they're they're just an, an engineering masterpiece and a work of art but in truth the tactical employment of the fg-42 it was designed to give the german paratroops more firepower um, than they would get with a 98k rifle it was also designed to kind of be a suppressive fire weapon that you could you could that's why it has a 20 round magazine that you could use it to suppress um, a position you know much like a squad automatic weapon and it had a telescope on it so it could kind of hit point targets beyond the range of an open sight weapon um, my viewpoint on all of that is it doesn't do any of those three things very particularly well so um, it, it was rather a compromise but it could do those three things just well enough to justify its existence but I think it's its manufacture was pretty complex it's an expensive weapon it's also long-term reliability I've read that there were some long-term you know reliability issues uh, with it you know because they, they face it it just came in you know the war was on and uh, sometimes you have to introduce things that are perhaps a little less than perfect so it, it kind of came in did that I don't think you know the the closest things I can think of imagine if you took a BAR Browning automatic rifle uh, shortened it down to what a 
a cult monitor the shortened version was and then put a scope on it then it would be that would be the same kind of thing you and you'd kind of look at that going what am i really supposed to do with this and and the answer would be well it's it can do these three things not as well as a single purpose weapon designed for that particular purpose but it, it's it's uh versatile enough to do all three just well enough to justify its existence now i think that there have been some really good videos on youtube and that's where i would commend people to go kind of take a look at it and yeah it's a it's a very very cool gun and uh um but look at it and i think you would see the same things i see it's that it can do certain things okay but it's not for any single purpose it's not certainly an ultimate type of of weapon okay are black powder substitutes the equal of black powder in power and accuracy well since black powder is expensive and difficult to come by in anything but the most you know kind of really specialized stores it's it's very very it's it's they're problematic so you can just buy these substitutes just like regular smokeless powder and uh, they all work pretty well um, what I will tell you is I have found the best luck with Hodgdon triple seven um, I think that's really really good I now I do have some uh, Pyrodex RS that I'm trying to work with simply because I bought a can of this way back when and so I'm just kind of using it up you know hey I can just I'm just not going to waste it so I'm going to go ahead and use it uh, I prefer genuine black powder I think black powder is awesome I think it's fun uh, and it certainly puts out a little bit more smoke and and some fire so I, I really enjoy that but the substitutes aren't bad and you know their availability is a lot easy a lot easier to get a hold of so um, they're not a bad deal uh, not a bad deal at all I, I think people have had various there's a whole spectrum of experience out there that some people will say pyrodex is garbage they can't use it some people say goex black powder is garbage um, you know so you're gonna you're gonna you're never gonna find a unanimous opinion of what is the best other than uh, the purists will say well if you do anything other than black powder you're probably making a mistake so yeah the substitutes are fine i i just out of tradition like black but you know hey i'll use these others i don't really i don't really have a problem with that and as far as power and accuracy go uh, as long as you match uh the granulations the ffg uh is like pyrodex p uh, rs and triple set triple seven i think comes in a couple different granulations but yeah the 2f triple uh, seven is really good i use that in revolvers and really it's very consistent really very good so it's a good deal there so um yeah so power and accuracy are, are fine in in actual now i use everything in i use it in cap and ball pistols and black powder cartridge rifles actual muzzle loaders um i will defer to others on um whatever whatever their expertise is i will i will defer to that because i don't i don't shoot those i don't they've never really um they have never really uh captured my my imagination or my attention not the way that the black powder cartridge rifles do and i don't know why they do uh, but they do so that's that's what it is okay we've had this question before are the semi-auto thompsons any good Yes, they are. Um, like any gun manufacturer, some of them are, are better than others when it comes to, like, and it's usually not the gun's problem. It's usually the magazines. Um, make sure your magazines are good. And uh, most of the problems people have with them are magazine-related. And uh, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, I have seen the, the aluminum frame ones... Uh, a lot of people didn't really dig um, simply because they you know they would the rear sight would fly off and kind of strip the uh, the holes 
take the whole take the, take the uh, threads from the holes with it. Um, I have never I've only seen one and it did have a uh, um, I wasn't there when it happened but it did have a rear sight that sheared off um, and I don't even know they make the aluminum ones anymore if they do I haven't heard any problems about them but yeah go with the steel they're heavy but they're good <laughs> you know it's like they're heavy but they're good so I would I would stick with them they're all right next question are the commercial m1 carbines any good um, you know, for, for what most people need, they're fine. Um, they've been making these things for like 60 years. Plainfield made them, Universal made them, um, and, and, and some other companies have, have made them. And they got, they're, they're being made now, and they're not cheap. But I've, I've not heard anything really bad from them. Um, you know, for a recreational gun, they're fine. Probably for a defense gun, they're fine. It's like any other anything else i mean you have to go out and test fire it and make sure it meets the reliability um demands that you have for a gun you're going to defend yourself with you do that if you you can buy a top end ar and you have to do the same thing you know you have to check it out and and shoot it but they don't really have any problems that um are unconquerable um you know i think they work just fine have not heard anything really bad uh, about them and for the money they're charging, that's probably a good thing. Okay. Next, who is your favorite gunwriter? I think we've had that before too. Hands down, Skeeter Skelton. If you don't know who he was, you can just Google him. Uh, a lot of his stories come up. He's He not only writes about guns, he writes fiction that is very gun-based and that uh, gun enthusiasts really like um you know it's just their pleasures to read they're like he, he didn't really write books he wrote short stories and a lot of times those were you know he would serialize them in gun magazines i think shooting times is where he actually worked the most i think he started uh in the early 60s and went up until his uh his death in 1988 so he was probably good 25 years in the industry his son Bart Skelton who just recently passed away sadly um, God, what, I don't even know that he was 60 years old I think he might have been 60 or 61 years old um, he was also did some gun writing but it was kind of the gun writing you see nowadays a little bit more technical not really any stories or anything just uh, writing about a gun and, and loads and things but uh uh yeah it's sad to see that go because uh the the characters you know that gun industry had real characters back then and it, you know it's sad to see them go but you know their writings live on and you can go you can get the stuff from elmer keith and uh what is it charles atkins bill jordan you know, skeeter skelton you can get those and there are other guys too they're those certainly aren't the only ones but you can you can find those things sometimes even in used bookstores and um you know they are um they're very entertaining to read a lot of their stuff is of course dated now but that's that's part of the fun you know that's that way you can learn more about older guns than uh um by the people who actually use them and and uh, use them quite a bit so that's it on that question here's an interesting question what type of gun would you carry in a, a light airplane um, in case the plane was forced down or crashed in a remote area you know that that's an interesting question uh, and that probably uh that probably came in because we talked a little bit about the uh, ar-7 the israeli air force ar-7s last time um first of all most guns designed to be carried in airplanes like the m6 survival rifle you know are, are actually pretty stupid if you've never seen the m6 uh you realize <laughs> that it's this goofy over and under looking thing um kind of skeletonized no wood on it no forearm um and it's like 22 or 22 hornet over um 410 you know and and it's got places in the uh, buttstock for for ammunition and it was designed i guess you'd kind of keep it in a little compartment so that if your plane went down over the arctic 
or over some some you know vast wilderness that you could go out and you could actually um, forage with it now you know I don't first of all I, I don't know that there was ever a single case where that was done where you know a DC-3 or a C-54 or you know a bomber plane went down and they just broke these out and hey there's all kinds of uh, rabbits all over the place and, and uh, small game so we'll just forage until we're rescued I don't know that that ever happened I don't think so I think these things were just clunky they put them in and out of planes they had to account for them and they were of very little use to the point where I don't think that they even carry any of that kind of stuff anymore uh, very very clunky now interestingly interestingly the Soviet space program actually had firearms they took up into space and it was essentially the same thing you know they didn't do water landings they would land in the middle of Kazakhstan or Siberia and it could be hours and worst case it could be days before um, the recovery parties got to them and of course there are bears and things there so they actually had uh, weapons that would defend this so they could defend themselves against you know predatory animals so that's kind of interesting and I think if I were in a small plane flying around Alaska or flying around some you know uninhabited wilderness place I would probably carry first of all I wouldn't bother with a handgun I'm just not gonna bother with it um, unless I, I was really convinced that it was optimal for where I was flying but uh, if I were flying over bear country we'll say bears and wolves um, I would want a probably a 30-06 with a 20-inch barrel and a just a standard um, you know composite type stock you know fiberglass you know molded plastic you know the kind of just cheesy cheap stocks you get now that's probably what I would take I would also want somewhere on it even if I had to tape it to it a screwdriver where I'd have a screwdriver set with it so in case the low power scope I'd want on it I'd only want like a three power scope on it um, in case that in case I didn't survive the crash very well then I could just dismount it and use the backup iron sights and it's strictly defensive uh, so that's that's what I would probably that's probably what I would want just something that I could defend myself with and that would be that would be the biggest thing I, I don't see myself you know shooting an elk and skinning it and eating it until the search parties come or whatever so uh, that's that's probably what I would uh, go with I don't know what other people why wouldn't I take a handgun well because a handgun is, you know it's not as powerful as a 30-06 why would I take a 30-06 well because I can I can get ammo for it anywhere um, you know if you travel to you know no matter where you travel in the continental United States you can find 30-06 in any any Walmart um, other stuff you may or may not find a lot of times you can find 308 too it's it's just almost as easy to find but I, I just like 30-06 and I would also use the heaviest bullet loads I could get being 180 or, or uh, uh, hopefully 200s you know. now if I was predominantly worried about two-legged varmints um, yeah then it would be a whole different deal probably go ARs or you know there, there's a part of me that says yeah G3 with a scope on it would be uh, HK91 slash G3 with a with a scope on it would be a sweet would be a sweet thing to have in that kind of situation but anyway that's what I would carry in an airplane okay here is our next question did the grand ping make any difference in combat uh, there and what this is talking about is when you're when you fire your last your eighth round out of an M1 Garand the empty end block clip automatically ejects and it usually makes a pinging sound um, 
the cool part about that is is that hey you don't have to deal with it anymore it's gone it's ejected so you just put the fresh rounds with the new end block clip in but since it did make a noise there's always been this old gun myth that you know the enemy would wait till they heard a ping and then they knew you were reloading that's all nonsense if you've ever been on a firing line where m1 garands are being fired you, you can't hear the ping um even realizing that you know you're wearing probably wearing ear protection at the time um you just can't hear you know you just can't hear it if you're in combat you're not going to hear it there's machine guns and all kinds of things going off you're not going to be hearing pings especially if the enemy was using a rifle that had that ping you just you're just not going to hear it so that's just an old gun myth that uh, has been hanging around forever okay next question have you seen the philippine guerrilla shotguns uh you know i think i know what that question's about they in the early 60s uh, a guy who'd been a uh, kind of a guerrilla in the philippines fighting the japanese they'd made shotguns that were just kind of a a tube that you'd put a shell in and you'd slide it back and it hit a fixed firing pin um and of course it would ignite the shell and you could just make these things out of you know steel pipes and things uh, I have heard of them I may have I do believe I saw one years and years and years ago and I really didn't take much notice of it but I think um, Forgotten Weapons has got a uh, uh, a couple of one or at least one video maybe two videos on these things so you can uh, I would commend you to go there they've they've got all the details but yeah they were just kind of a very inexpensive um, thing that would actuate a cartridge um, you could never sell it today because of all the product liability things but it's actually kind of cool the, the background information on it is actually okay and here's another question why do you like older and it's quote-unquote vintage guns well, I don't know why. Like, like a lot of things, why do you like something? Well, you don't know. You just know that you like it. Uh, when I go into a gun shop, the things that I'm not interested in are the banks of polymer-framed pistols. Uh, I tend to go to the used gun section and look at the older guns. I've always liked older guns. I've always uh, liked guns that have a historical association. I've always I just I can't explain it but I've always liked that and I'm basically my interest is post Civil War uh, through the end of the Cold War that, that's that's a pretty big chunk but that's kind of where I am and it encapsulates a lot of um, a lot of bolt-action rifles uh, early semi-automatic you know early the Cold War early kind of rifles and also the um, you know, like going back to the, you know stuff from the the Wild West and also uh, the black powder cartridge era. And uh, the only thing I like earlier than that are cap and ball revolvers, which I don't know why I like them. I think it's just because they're quirky and and very interesting old technology that I that I find fascinating. So I think that's the uh, reason I like them. I like a lot of antique and older things um, in general anyway so I guess the the firearms are a logical extension of that so that's kind of where I am with all that okay here's the next question and that is why were the 3840 and 4440 cartridges bottlenecked um, two, two reasons. Number one, the, the, um, the parent case was essentially a 45 Colt. I mean, I don't know that they actually say that, but it, in fact of the matter, it was. So, you know, they just basically necked them down one to 44 caliber, one to 40 caliber. Um, the reason they didn't go with a straight walled was just powder capacity, um, you know you you have to generate so much black powder generates power a little differently than smokeless so you need capacity and you need larger charges to 
to get them kicking out there. So that was one reason. Another reason was to seal the chain. They thought that that would help seal the chamber and you wouldn't have gas blowback. I think that was the other reason they they did that. They're both good cartridges. Uh, I prefer 3840, but um, they're both darn good cartridges, that's for sure. But that's the reason they were bottlenecked. Okay, next question. Let's see. Why were lever-action rifles not used more in the military in the 19th century? Uh, the easy, there's several. There's probably several factors. The first is cost. Lever-action rifles are expensive to buy. They're expensive to maintain. And they use more ammunition, which makes them expensive. And we're talking the second half of the 19th century. Um, U.S. military in particular was very, very frugal. I mean, up until, I think, even into the Spanish-American War, they were still using Civil War surplus uniforms, um, at least on the militia level. Um, there was, you know, just a lot of stuff. A lot of the slings you see on trapdoor rifles that were in the 1870s, 1880s, were former Civil War slings from the Civil War rifled muskets. Um, there were just a lot of, any place they could save money, they did. So saving money was a big factor. Another factor was they believed in long range, and that's why they went from uh, the 58 caliber trapdoor conversions, which, you know, probably had a trajectory. I could probably throw a softball um, at a flatter trajectory than they shot. They went from that to 5070, which still had a pretty uh, healthy trajectory, um, to 4570. Um, they believed in power and they believed in long range. And the flatter you could shoot, the longer range uh, theoretically you would have. So they believed in full power cartridges. They didn't, and all the lever action rifles at that time were. Uh, you know, essentially pistol caliber carbines. So, so there you go. That's another reason. The exception to that would be the 76 Winchester. It was a good design. And I think the uh, Canadian Mounties used it. And it was for a more powerful cartridge. And it wasn't 4570, but um, they had them in some more powerful cartridges. By the time the 1886 Winchester came, came about, repeating bolt action rifles were kind of out. You know, think of, think of the date, 1886. You also took talk about smokeless powder coming out um so there were there were going to be some different directions to go and the lever action just wasn't a direction anybody was really willing to take um until world war one where the imperial russia ordered you know some large quantities of uh, m1895 winchesters 1895 winchesters did get a lot of law enforcement use i think uh, teddy roosevelt took one with him to cuba uh, in in 3040 Crag, they they did get some use, but nothing near what bolt action rifles were were getting. And again, it's you know it goes also down to there were still a lot of people in the uh, ordnance bureaus and everything else who thought the more the faster a rifle can shoot, the more ammo you're going to waste. <clears throat> so they were very very um cognizant of that and you know they did not want for some reason ammo wastage became this became something that was a lot greater than problem it was envisioned as a lot greater problem than it actually was and if you look at little bighorn you could see where faster firing rifles would have definitely um been something that they could use but but they did not you know they they went with the simple uh, it goes back to like the Remington rolling block, a very simple gun that you can use with just a modicum of training. Um, lever actions are a bit more complex. And I think the the main, one of the main reasons is I think the maintenance on a lever action rifle, you know, when you're out in Montana, um, who's going to fix it when it's broken? Well, you've got to ship it all the way back east. To, to an arsenal, Springfield Armory, for say, let's say. So you got to ship it all the way back there to fix it. Whereas, you know, simpler designs like a trapdoor, you could just replace the block 
or replace part of the trigger mechanism. It wasn't because they were quite simple, they could be fixed. Um, they didn't break as often and they could be fixed and much, much simpler. So um, as I babbled through that, that is probably the reason they were not used in the 19th century. Uh, you said that there are too many calibers. How many calibers aren't needed? Um, that's a that's just a very subjective question. I have said there are too many calibers, and proof of that is is that uh, people who make brass and bullets can't really keep up. You know, if you have something that's not on the top ten popularity list, um, you you know you have a hard time finding brass for it anymore. I mean, it just it's just incredible sometimes. So I would say that we probably have twice as many as we actually need. And where, where that's hurting us is there isn't enough of any any one. I mean, they don't know what to produce to keep the market happy. So it's very interesting. I mean, if it wasn't for PPU, a lot of our older military calibers would be toast because there just isn't surplus out there anymore. You know, that, that kind of carried it through for probably 20 maybe even 30 years when there's a lot of uh, surplus 303 British on the market there's no incentive to make it there just isn't same thing with eight millimeter Mauser you know um, same thing with even well 762 NATO for a long time was there was a lot of surplus out there 556 there was a lot of surplus out there now that's all basically gone and uh, you know, the toll ammo, ammo from Russia is gone forever. So, you know, that was another place where you could kind of get some, you know, low cost, you know, was kind of helping that that uh, ammo market in the popular calibers so that they could concentrate on bringing out some of these other things. Now I think we have a production shortfall where we just can't produce and support all the calibers that are out there. And it seems like there's something new coming out every freaking month. Used to be. You know, you put on that, well, it used to be, but it used to be that, you know, you might have one or two calibers introduced in a year. Now there's almost something coming out every month. I mean, that's what it seems like. And uh, a lot of them are really good, but they're never going to be popular because of the cost of the ammo, uh, especially ones that are designed to be shot a lot, like uh, 5.7 by 28. I mean... That's going to be a rich man's <laughs> proposition there. So it doesn't matter how good it is or how well it performs. What matters is, is ammo available and what does it cost? And it's it's a lot. And same thing with uh, a lot of these other ones. And, and they're just too many to name. There's just too many to name. Um, PRS has spawned a bunch. And whether they're actually any better or not, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> I had uh, one acquaintance, he had uh, a nice savage rifle in 6.5 Creedmoor, and so, and, and, and he's a guy who's lots of times likes to try the newest thing, so when he got the barrel for 6mm Creedmoor, he thought, hey, this is a, this is a whole lot better, it's going to be great, and he found that it, it wasn't, it, uh, um, it did not have, it seemed that 6.5 Creedmoor was a very forgiving and is a very forgiving cartridge um, because the different loads you can put in it, it seems to shoot them all very, very well. Whereas 6mm Creedmoor, um, he did not find that to be the case. Now that's just one guy, one story, one one thing, but it just kind of, sh kind of shows you that sometimes the cool kids having the latest and greatest just doesn't always work out and all of a sudden they're on the bandwagon everybody's on the bandwagon and then a year later there's nobody on the bandwagon because something else has come along or they found it's not as good as people said and uh, that's why I'm, I'm I'm pretty conservative you know I'm both a collector and I like old guns but I also am a shooter so you know, I like proven technology. I don't like going with the latest and greatest and then finding out that uh, all of a sudden uh, it's it's a mess. So I'm usually pretty prudent. I, I like to let something stay in the market a little bit and prove itself. 
rather than just jump on the, the bandwagon. Okay, next question. What are the best gifts for a shooter? I hate to say this, but gift cards are really pretty good. Um, because you, you just don't know what people need. And there's no one answer because there's so many different shooting disciplines and so many levels of participation and everything else. Uh, for a hand loader, uh, gift cards are great, great because you can uh, go online. When you find what you need, you can you can buy it. So that's great. Or go to the large stores. Uh, it pains me to say this, but Brass Pro Shops, which I don't really care for, or Shields, which I really do care for. I really like that store. Um, you know, Academy Sports, any, any of the large, you know, brick and mortar stores uh, a good a good gift card to that is a uh, pretty good deal so that's those are my best things other things that always come in is uh you know cleaning supplies are always useful i mean especially if it's you know a younger person a child giving a gift to dad um you know cleaning supplies are always good and they can be had fairly economically uh, that's that's some of the lower cost stuff is out there. You always need patches. You always need solvent. You know, you always need some of that CLP gun oil. You always need some of that stuff. So it's good to you know get a hold of it and uh, get it. Um, you know, if you know the right size, scope covers are very nice to have. Uh, they're just good good things. That's that's all there is to it. Uh, trying to think. Uh, not too much. Not too much else really, really comes to mind. If you know someone's favorite caliber, um, a box of cartridges in that caliber, sometimes are a really good deal. Um, you know, sometimes they're not, but sometimes they're a good deal because you got to make sure you got the right, not only the right caliber, but the right bullet weight, the stuff they actually use. So, uh, the, but those are those are good possibilities. You know, those are those are all good possibilities. So that's what I would say are are some of the best. Um, also, you know, uh, uh, logo gear for their favorite guns are something that, you know, you can buy. You just know their clothing size or their hat size, and you can get something really nice uh, logo gear that they'll, they'll really want. So I would say that's, a, uh, that's an excellent um, – those are all excellent choices that I can think of right away. Okay, next question. Why is the reputation of the World War II Thompson fading among gun, quote, experts, unquote? Uh, that's because most gun, there's two reasons. Number one, it's a, it's a hundred-year-old design, so it's not state-of-the-art. They certainly don't make them with modern lightweight materials. Um, a lot of the gun experts, quote-unquote, grew up on ARs, so that's their frame of reference. I mean, anything heavier they don't like, anything that's that's not as intuitive, it's a little harder to change the magazines with, they don't like. Uh, all that stuff, a lot of that stuff they don't like. Um, I, myself, am a believer that I, I think the Thompson was absolutely fantastic, not only for its time frame, but just just overall the aesthetics are beautiful everything about it is really nice and I really like it also it's not something that the cool kids can get their their hands on quite a bit they either go for the semi-automatic SBR which which a few of them like or you pay big money and get one of the transferable ones which is a a you know a lot of money and uh, so they're not readily available to everyone so um, that's that's one of the reasons. Plus, we live in an, an era where um, it's like the M14. Uh, when I was coming up, the M14 was just venerated. The M1A was the civilian M14. It was venerated too. Now people look really down on them. You know, I mean, and uh, I I really think that's that's ridiculous. But again, these are AR guys. I mean, when you're talking all these guys who are putting up and guys who should actually know better but a lot of these guys are all just ar centric so you know hey shoot your ars have a have a great time you know just it's awesome have a great time 
Um, these are the same guys that hate the G3. They don't really have a lot of respect for the FAL. They don't have a lot of respect for anything that's, you know, pre-AR or contemporary with the AR that just didn't uh, catch on. So that's that's one of the reasons why. And you see with the 1911, you know, there are these guys who, who dish rag 1911s. Again, it's a 100-year-old design. Um, but actually, I look out there, I don't, for me, I don't see anything better out there. So, so uh, when I walk into a gun shop, like I was talking about with the vintage guns, um, you know, I walk right past all the polymer guns and walk right over to the used gun or the, the more traditional firearms. And that's, there is a strong market for traditional firearms, which is, and some of that, the 19th century guns, has been driven by the uh, cowboy action shooting. You know, face it, that, that's the reason we have a lot of the reproductions we do. And, uh, you know, that's a strong market. And there's a, there's a very strong market for, you know, nostalgic um, firearms from, you know, up to the, or now it's like the 1960s, you know, so... Anyway, uh, but the Thompson, yeah, its reputation may be fading, but those who know, know. Well, that's it for this edition of Old School Guns. And if you have any questions or comments, uh, please go ahead and send them to kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or leave them in the comments section on Podbean. And uh, again... Uh, the schedule will be probably uh, a little bit fluid during the during the holidays, but have a great Thanksgiving and a great holiday season, and uh, we'll be talking to you when we can. But for now, this is Old School Guns, out. <laughs>